train approaching. Stand back on the platform edge. Hello everybody, welcome to the How Train Talks podcast station. With me in the studio today is Mr. William Dusks, the Chief Operating Officer for the How Train Management Agency. Afternoon to you, William, and welcome to the studio. Hi, Vivi, thank you. Thank you for joining us. What most people don't know is that you've been involved in the How Train project for the at least the beginning or inception of the project in, in many um, or various areas of responsibility. Could you take us through your career involvement with the Gautrain project and just broadly Triple P projects in general? Yeah, sure, Viwe. I was actually hired by the National Treasury in 2000 to form part of the PPP unit. In fact, I was the first local hire in the PPP unit. And the first engineer, by the way, in National Treasury, the first one they'd ever hired. Uh, So... Um, that ended well for both of us, I'm happy to say. But it was very fortuitous timing because it was also the year in which the pre-feasibility study for the Gauteng was completed. And it yeah. was decided by the Gauteng Provincial Government to register the project as a PPP. Okay, yeah. And it landed on Treasury's desk and they said... Who do we give this to? Well, there's a new PPP unit. Who in the PPP unit do we give this to? Well, there's an engineer, William Dax, here you go. You're the most suited with your engineering experience. Exactly. And I was sent off down to downtown Johannesburg where the project leader, Jack van der Merwe, was located as the head of department for what is now the Gauteng Department of Roads and Transport. Yes. And a very small team of consultants, which grew ultimately into the province support team. Okay. And my job basically was to explain to this team what the PPP process and what the PPP regulations in South Africa were Mm. and what they meant for the Gautrain project. Yeah. And I must say, from the word go, I think Jack and his team embraced the fact that they would have to work closely with National Treasury. Yeah that they would have to follow the PPP regulations and by doing so it would actually it would be good for the project and I think it was that spirit of cooperation that really set the tone for our engagement over the next 10-12 years. A lot of departments kind of resist any regulation and interference as they perceive it. Yes. Jack and his team never never did that so I think that was a very positive thing and, and it meant that we from Treasury could reciprocate yeah. when it came to giving approvals or giving advice. It was in a in an environment of I think mutual trust. Yes. And to the benefit of the of, of the project. We've touched briefly on the regulations and the process of triple P projects, but if you were to give us in an overview, in a nutshell, what the the triple P framework is about. If I could summarize it for listeners, it would be that there's a contract between a public sector entity and a private sector entity. Mm. And the private sector entity has to do something that government would otherwise have done. It must take a lot of risk in doing it. And it must deliver the outputs that government wants it to do. Yeah. And in doing that is entitled to some remuneration. Now, it's on the remuneration side that things get a little bit more complicated. 
And basically, there are two types of PPPs in South Africa. Yeah. One is where the user pays, and the revenue stream to the private sector comes from users. The classic of these is toll roads. Yes. You drive your car, you go through a toll booth, you pay money. If you don't drive, they don't get the money. Yeah. The second kind is, is one where the user doesn't have to pay, and government provides the revenue stream. So this might be a hospital, a government accommodation, a prison. Yeah. And we commonly call those availability type payments. Okay. So where government pays for the facility that the private sector has built and mm. operates and is available. So in the context of a hospital, there would be an availability payment if the wards were available to patients. The operating theatres are working, okay. there's medicine, there's nurses, there's yes. doctors. And if any of those aren't working, then government doesn't pay. Now, in both instances, the private sector takes a lot of risk on operating the infrastructure that they've built. Yeah. And we can come back to it in our discussion, but I think that's a key element of a PPP. Yeah. Private sector involvement throughout all the stages of project implementation and operation. You've already touched on it. Let's, let's just stay with that topic for a moment there. In the fundamental difference between what we one can call uh, ordinary tendering process of uh, or following the normal procurement pro- process or doing a project via the triple p framework yeah so let's let's introduce a term now that we can that we can use regularly and that's the life cycle of a project yeah. especially an infrastructure project so the life cycle would go something like this Inception, someone has the idea or identifies the need. Yes. Then going into um, some kind of preliminary design, how does one meet that need? Mm. Then the appointment of consultants to do a more detailed design and prepare tender documents. Mm. Then a construction phase during which a private sector construction company or a range of construction companies Mm. will come and build whatever infrastructure there is. Then there's a handover back to government, Mm. and then government operates it for the next 20, 30, and sometimes even longer, 50 years. I think Baragwanath Hospital's been around since World War II, which would make it, wow, coming on for 60, 70 years old. So the life cycle of these projects can can be very long. Now, what happens in a PPP is that government says, I'm still going to be the owner of the project. Mm. I'm going to identify the need and I'm going to say how that need should be met. But instead of appointing consultants to do a design and a contractor to build it and maybe an operator or suppliers to help me during the operations period, I'm going to put all of that into one contract. Yeah. And this is the really smart bit. I'm only going to pay for it during the operating period. So if the private sector misdesigns it or constructs it badly or runs late with it, that's their problem. Yeah. And I think that addresses one of the big problems that we have as a government is that our projects run over budget Mm -hmm. and they run Mm -hmm. over time. Maybe the third one is that when we've built it, we don't maintain it. Yes. Now, I'm sure you've driven over a few potholes over the last the last few months and years, especially as you leave the national road network. Especially during the rainy season. And especially during the rainy season. Today happens to be one of those days. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And you would also, I would imagine, have walked into a 
a government office, maybe home affairs or somewhere, and you've seen that the computers are old or something's offline or something's not, not working. Yeah. And those are very typical maintenance issues. The potholes come because a small little hole isn't fixed yeah. in time and it, and it, and it grows. Yeah. Now imagine a contracting system where if there's a pothole in the road, the private sector loses money. Do you think they'll fix that first hole, that patch that first little start of the problem? I think they would. Yeah. And that's where the concept of a PPP works in the context of a whole life cycle mm. of the project. What one also does is looks at it from an asset point of view. So in a PPP arrangement, the government will always remain the owner of the assets. So even on our toll roads, government owns those roads. There's no contestation around that. Yes. But the private sector looks after those assets and at the end of their concession period, they can be penalized or even rewarded for the condition in which those assets are returned to government or the use is returned to government. And again, that creates a nice set of incentives for the private sector to then maintain very well. Yeah, and those set of incentives and penalties to a certain extent are not provided for if you were to go the ordinary procurement That's process. That's exactly right. There's no penalty mechanism. It's quite interesting. Government has tried to move over to towards performance-based contracting, mm. but I think there's always a gap for an operator to blame the contractor and the contractor to blame the designer because they weren't part of a, a team, the a package English. in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. Before we move on, maybe if I can just give you one of the criticisms of a PPP though. Yes. Maybe two. The first is that they just cost too much. Mm. So when you look at this life cycle um, approach, you say, wow, you government's paying a lot for that hospital bed or that prison cell or um, users are paying a lot to use use the toll road, whereas on a publicly built road or prison or hospital, it's free. Mm. Now, that I think ignores some of the hidden costs. You know, the pothole example that we spoke about. Who yeah. bears the cost of that? Well, be where you do as the user, but on government books, that road is pretty much free. Yeah. The second criticism is that they just take too long to procure. So often in government, people say, oh yes, a PPP is a good idea and it would be suitable, but we have to have this ready by next year. So unfortunately, we can't do it. Mm. And I've heard that a lot of times when I was in Treasury as well. And getting back to Train, I think that's where Jack and his team had a very realistic approach. They knew that the preparation time for a massive project like Train was going to be years. Yeah. And they built into their programming enough time to follow the Treasury steps. And uh, having spoken about that criticism of Triple P projects in terms of cost, the time it takes, in what instances then would you recommend one or a government institution to follow the Triple P process, having taken into context the, the pros and cons of each? So my, my view on it is that every single large project or mega project, and we can talk about what size that is, but certainly for me anything above three to 400 million rand should go through the same feasibility study as if it was going to be a PPP project. 
Okay. Why do I say that? Because the decision as to whether to do it as a PPP or not is actually secondary to the decisions that get made in terms of how to implement it anyway or whether to do it or not. And often I think in South Africa we've seen projects that are implemented that if there'd been a bit of thought, a bit of planning, a bit of a feasibility study, we either wouldn't have done it or we would have done it very differently. Mm. So I'm a strong advocate of regardless of the mode, BPP or not, always do a very thorough feasibility study. So is there merit or perhaps benefit in writing this condition, if I may, into the procurement process or the procurement regulations? I mean, the new procurement regulations are out for 2017. Does it take into account some of this insight that you've shared with us? So it's never made it into regulation. Okay. But it's in National Treasury's capital budgeting guidelines, which are okay. issued to departments. Now, unfortunately, they are just guidelines. They're so there's no regulatory imperative to do it. It's not enforceable. Okay. But I think it's it would be good practice if it was. Okay. So we are still with Mr. William Ducks talking about the How Train project as a triple P. And our next segment of the interview is about the How Train project having been in existence as a project for the last 15 years, operating for the last five. Would you say, given us the context of the framework and, and what requirements are there for a triple P, did the How Train project, how did it fare in meeting all those requirements? Well, let's break that down into a few um, a few elements. Yeah. First, there were objectives that related to the project that weren't PPP specific. So these were objectives of really adding to the Gauteng economy, impacting on the socio-economic fabric of, of Gauteng, transforming the cities. Mm. And I think it's gone beyond debate now. I think the KPMG report of 2014 puts that to bed. Yes, it did meet its objectives. Yeah. When we look at the the multiplier, I love this multiplier. Yeah. One rand seventy three of economic impact for every one rand spent in the development period, and close to two rand economic impact for every one rand spent in the operating period. Says yes, our train ticks that box. Mm. Let's look at another element which did it succeed as a PPP. And there I think our answer is a bit more nuanced. Mm. From an efficiency of operation perspective, the fact that if we walked across the road now to Midrand Station and the app on our phones would tell us what time the train arrives and it will arrive at that time with 98, we're 98% sure it's going to arrive on the minute that it's predicted, tells us that yes. The private sector really was able to design, construct, and implement a working rail system. Yeah. I don't think government could have done it. I really think that in terms of the integration of all the technologies that was required, it would have been a step too far for us. Mm. So that's that's a big tick for a for a PPP. And perhaps uh, would you also attribute that to availability of expertise in the country, capacity, and all of that? I would. I would. I also think that the PPP consortium being made up of a combination of rolling stock experts, mm-hmm. construction experts, and operating experts, they could combine their IP and their expertise in a way that government just couldn't have. We didn't. Yes. Maybe on the construction side, we 
could have got halfway there. Yeah. But rolling stock and electromechanical works, no. Operating, no. Yeah. But I think, and the reason it's 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 a nuanced answer is those criticisms of the PPP framework or the PPP concept is the cost element. Okay. And Gautrain, we're paying now perhaps a premium in terms of the private sector involvement mm. over that which we would have paid assuming government could have built it. So listen listen to that carefully. Assuming yeah. that government could have built it, we're probably paying too much now. And we attract a lot of criticism for that mm. in terms of this patronage guarantee. But I think we've got to take that step back and look at it holistically. Mm. Without the private sector, we would have no project. With them, we've able, been able to deliver this successfully operating system. And to deny them their return on their investment, I think, is almost wanting one's cake and having it and eating it at the same time. Yeah. What really excites me about Gautrain, though, is that its lifetime, its life cycle goes way beyond the current concession agreement. In 2026, the way things are going now, we are going to have a revenue stream from users that is going to be higher, substantially higher than the operating costs, Mm -hmm. and is going to be, as I said before, a set of assets that have been well maintained and returned to government's use, either for putting out on an operating contract or expanding or... So I I think from a long-term point of view, we can even tick the cost box. I think we're going to be able to say that the costs of heart train, including the private sector return on on investment, mm. make it worthwhile overall as a PPP. And also, perhaps you touched on the economic impact over time and what has been reported in the KPMG report as having been, you know, quite substantial value for what the government invested initially. Yes, good point. In my thinking about a PPP, I'd actually left aside those economic impacts, Mm. which also a very strong argument towards doing a project like Hartrain and doing it well. Yeah. And having spoken about that criticism, what were the challenges or what would you describe as as challenges in in implementing such a project? So let me pick two main ones. Mm. I think the first... It's just the complexity of contracting. You know, to to write a contract that anticipates a five-year development period and 15 years of operation, so 20 years into the future, has got to be complex. It's got to contemplate a whole range of scenarios. Hmm. It's got to put contractual mechanisms in place that create incentives, create disincentives through penalties, Hmm. and regulate the behavior of two parties over a long period of time and that is a massive massive challenge and that's where again Jack having a strong team and supported well by Treasury and the expertise that the PPP unit could deploy helped enormously but PPPs aren't for the naive and the (laughs) and and the the innocent you know it's it's a contractual negotiation during the period leading up to the conclusion of the PPP agreement. Mm. And it's a tough battle afterwards in terms of managing the complex concession agreement. 
So you can't sign a PPP agreement, a concession agreement, and then say bye-bye and expect it to just run smoothly. It's very um, resource-intensive in, in terms of managing it. I think the second challenge that, that, that we faced on this is just it's so big. Mm. You know, there's a lot of money at stake, yeah. a lot of risk transferred. And I think that that led or was an ideal breeding ground for contractual disputes. And we've seen how that played out in the development period. We're very pleased that we finally put them to bed with a settlement agreement yeah. last December. Mm. But let's face it, um, it's more than 10 years since the concession agreement was signed. So it led to a decade of commercial toing and froing and very yeah. expensive legal legal fees. So in in if if what I'm moving forward now into expansions and extensions projects that are planned, if we are to go ahead with that, what would be the real key skill set that uh, is required to run such a project? Well, let me start on a on the on a very positive note, and we this is an incredible achievement. Hartrain is expandable and extendable. In other words, the model works. Yes. If we go to market for more rolling stock as we're doing now, people are interested. Mm. If we go out and we want to extend the network, people are interested. The market is interested. The banks are interested. The construction companies. Mm. Because they look at Hartrain and they see a success. And they see a, a project that can deliver value to them. And I'm talking now from a public and a private Point of view. So I think that's a major, major achievement. In terms of what we would do uh, perhaps a little bit differently, I think we would move away from a one-size-fits-all type PPP approach. And this is not a criticism of Treasury's regulations and process and manuals, but I don't think they ever contemplated a project of the size and complexity of, of yeah, our train. Mm -hmm. So what we would then look to do is to have a contracting model that has the, all the elements of, the, of a PPP, but build it around the operations and not the construction, the bulky, expensive construction of all the civils works. We think that that is something that can be divided out and can reduce the, the, the size and complexity of the PPP and then focus the PPP elements on the crucial bits that matter which is the trains, the systems they run on, and the people that they mm. that that they carry. I think the other thing which we would do is work through our concession agreement and just find the bits that never worked or that okay. caused us a whole lot of disagreements and disputes. Yeah, and just try and settle those. If it was inappropriate risk transfer, well, let's talk about it. Let's take it out the mm. next concession agreement. Okay, and then the final thing would be. Probably in terms of demand risk, I think it's a fiction that the private sector is willing to take demand risk fully mm. on these types of projects. And we should examine that and say, are they best placed to carry that risk? And if not, well, then can we move over to that availability type payment that I was describing to you earlier? In, in conclusion, then, of our interview, what were the main lessons? I know there are many lessons in the Gautrain doing the various p 
pod, uh, podcast interviews on the brand, on the construction and so on. From management of a triple P, what would you say are the three most valuable lessons learned from this project? Maybe that's a tough question. I, I, I've thought about this a lot and I've come to the conclusion that a PPP process is only as good as the people who run it. Okay. I Let's just hang on to that and just take it in yeah. <laughs> because uh, I think that's critical. Yeah. Okay. You know, I think looking back to the, that first meeting in Simmons Street, I think it was, with Jack and his team, the people that I met then were still working on the project when I joined the GMA in late 2010. Mm. So fully 10 years of continuity, Jack's leadership, and had taken it through a whole range of stages in the project and in South Africa as well. Mm. And the team had managed to adapt and grow and, and yet remain in, intact. The, the, the second one perhaps is project leadership. And yeah. there I would say on a political level, it's been it's been superb. You know, premier after premier has backed the car train, as well as the administrations in in Gauteng. And then, on a GMA level, the continuity of having a strong CEO mm. previously, um, the project leader in in Jack has really been essential. Mm. I've seen a lot of other projects with strong leaders who haven't continued through, and the yeah. project suffers it really does so that continuity is very very important i think that the, th the third one is just the power and the necessity of having government financial backing mm. that first investor conference in 2000 mm. i think the first question was what is national treaty's view of this project yes it looks well and good yeah um, but is there, is there funding for it? Yeah. And having the MEC of finance on the stage being able to say, yes, we back it. And then jump mm. forward to 2006, having Trevor Manuel stand up in parliament and announce in his budget speech that there is funding for Heart Train. Yeah. Absolutely essential and a key success factor. We have been with Mr. William Dusk on the How Train uh, project as a triple P. We've come to the end of our interview. William, thank you very much for joining us. I don't know if you have any other parting shot or last words of wisdom for us before we conclude. Thank you very much. This has been great wondering back through and reminiscing back through some recent history mm. I think for me the final statement that I want to make and hopefully there are listeners out there who are contemplating a, a PPP is that don't make short term decisions, don't avoid doing a PPP because of a time constraint mm. embrace the benefits and work towards realising them and it will pay off Thank you very much, William. You've been listening to the How Train Talks podcast station. To listen to this and more, please follow us on our Twitter page and log on to our website, howtrain.co.za. Thank you.